Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning. We have been spending the, uh, the month of August, and we actually started in July, just going back to the, the first call on our life, which is to minister to the presence of God. I did not have any idea when we planned this of how much it would be needed in my life to have extended times of worship, to have extended times of just ministering to God's presence. And the thing that I've been clinging to in this month of August is a, it's an old theological concept called the adequacy of God and the idea of where every situation you find yourself in, every trial that you face, every challenge that you come across, there's an adequate response in the very character of God. And so today I want to look at Psalm 27. I'd like us to read this together. The reason I like it when we, the church, read the word out loud is there are declarations in here that are spiritual warfare, that speak into the heavenly realm, and, they, and you yourself are speaking it, not your mind, but your voice. The enemy is not subject to your thoughts, but he is subject to your words. And as we speak this together as the church, there's war being made in the heavenlies. And so I love it when you do. Now, this is a somewhat of a lengthy passage. If you get tired, just kind of rest in Jesus. Catch back up with us. But let's read this together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger, you who have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong 
and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen, huh? Let that, let that come into your heart. Those are words of victory and salvation. So what I've, what I've been trying to do is to say, how do we, as we study the character of God, as we study the scriptures, how do we begin to see how God is adequate for every situation that you face? And this is such an interesting thing because the psalmist says that above all else, when you are faced with overwhelming trials in your life, it is to see, to gaze upon, to perceive the beauty, the fair beauty of the Lord in whatever situation that you're in. Now, <clears throat> sometimes I get accused of not being practical enough. And uh, people say, well, you should just tell us what to do. And I always look and say, if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Because the how has to come from the why. And if the motivation of your heart is not right, it doesn't matter how many steps you take. But all of us, when we're in trouble, we want the shortcut. We want the short path. Give me three steps. Give me a prayer I can pray. Give me something that will make this go away. And the truth is, even a prayer that works in one situation will not work in another. Because God will not become a vending machine. He will not say, okay, you got correct change. You can get your whatever you're asking for. And so it's very personal with God. One of the things that you have to remember is he knows whether you need to take the long way or the short way. In the Exodus, when he's leading the children of Israel out of bondage, he says, I have taken you the long way. And he said, the reason is, is you aren't ready to fight. And if you fought, you would not win. And so I've taken you the long way to give you the capacity for victory. Now, what I've seen in my life is I've seen sometimes where it's just very quick. I've, I've laid hands on tumors and they disappeared just because I spoke to those tumors in Jesus' name. I've seen arms lengthened. I've seen legs lengthened that had been that have been very dormant and very small and suddenly become completely normal sized. I've seen the dead come to life. I've seen people that were dead for hours upon hours and then speaking in Jesus name and they come, their breath comes back and they come back to life. I love the short way. I wish in every circumstance that I had, I could just tell you a prayer or I could just say, here's a strategy. But what the psalmist is saying is that in everything that's going on in your life, he's trying, God is trying to take you on the path that will give you capacity for the triumph, but it is a capacity to behold, to gaze upon, to actually perceive the beauty of our God. So why do we need this? Well, the psalmist says that everything, everything that matters to the believer comes down to this, to gazing on his beauty in the temple. Now, what's the context of gazing on his beauty? The context is he's speaking about reality. He actually calls it the day of trouble. 
And, and, and I know that David was an ancient king, and so you don't have armies that are coming against you. You may not have physical enemies or any of these things, but David is talking about the day of trouble being any kind and the full gamut of human suffering. Notice what he says. My mother and my father might forsake me. So it could be, he's talking about family dysfunction, relationship dysfunctions. He's talking about having enough resources to face all the demands on your life. And, the, and David says, whenever you are in the day of trouble, the only way to get through the day of trouble is to lift your eyes up and to behold and to take in the beauty of the Lord. Because even if your mother and your father forsake you, the Lord will receive you. Why is this so important? Well, because many of us would prefer to deny reality than face reality. And then there are lots of others of us who are so in touch with reality that we never have any hope. We just have fear. Now, in order to, to understand how beautiful this psalm is, you have to understand how important it is to be able to face life as it is. What I, what, what I do often is I, I listen to people, I read people that, that really resonate with my soul and really speak to me through the things that I'm going through. And as I listen to them, I listen and read the people they read. So someone that I read and listen to a lot talks about this guy by the name of Ernest Becker. Ernest Becker was a cultural anthropologist who wrote a book called The Denial of Death. It was a Pulitzer Prize winning book. And, and one of the things that Becker talks about is that in an era without God, people basically have to live denying the reality of death. And so because of that denial of the reality of death, everybody lives in a world either that they deny the reality of that world or they deny the truth or whatever of that world. And he said it this way. He said, to live life seriously, you must face the lived truth of the evil and terror of life, of the rumble of panic under everything. To close your eyes, then, is not authentic life. And one of the things that, that I like about this is it has felt like as we went through COVID, as we're coming out of this time, it has felt like most people that I meet have at least a low level, if not a high level, of anxiety. Many of the people are irritable, cranky, impatient, you know, demanding. Well, what that means is underneath everything, there's a panic. There's a feeling that if, if I am asked to do one more thing, if one more thing doesn't go the way I expect it to go, I don't know if I have the resources for that. I don't know if you've ever experienced a kind of a panic attack or if you've ever experienced a feeling like you just don't have the resources. When I have experienced that in my life, sometimes it has felt like the pain, like a, an emotional betrayal or a relationship gone bad has made me feel like I just don't want to live. And sometimes I've, I have had a fatigue on me that I felt like if I'm asked one more thing, I'm just going to get in my bed and pull the covers up and never come out again. And so the idea of trying to face the reality of life is the only way to take life seriously can only be lived, the psalmist is saying, is if you have an understanding 
but more so if you have an experience of the beauty of God. Because this psalm is taking life very seriously. And it's saying, if you are a follower of God, particularly in the New Testament, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the world hated him. The world ain't going to love you. In this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. But don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. I love this, I love this idea, but I do think it's interesting because I meet a lot of people who want to say they're overcomers, but never overcome anything. You have to overcome to be an overcomer. But the, the hope is, because you are born of God, that which is born of God must overcome the world. And so here's verse 5, and says, When I am gazing upon his beauty, then he will keep me safe. Verse 6, when is he keeping me safe? When the enemies surround him. When the enemies are closing in on him. See, what, what David is saying is that when you have an experience of the beauty of God, when you're just not looking for a strategy of how to win, but you're actually seeing the beauty of God, your eyes are not down, your head is not bowed, but your head is up in triumph and your eyes are looking forward. I'm still kind of blown away by that song. If I'm, if I'm not dead, you're not done. <laughs> it's, I know it rhymes. It's not that poetic. But it's pretty powerful. Because what it's saying is, if I have my eyes set right, greater things are ahead. See, it enables you to triumph over the difficulties. This isn't escapism. This is gazing on the beauty of our God. Now, this has been so important to me because the reality of what I see my wife going through, what I see as a head is scary to me. The drug that she's going to take, everything I read about it, even from the drug manufacturer itself, has got me very concerned about how debilitating it's going to be how effective it's going to be. All of the things that are going on, the realities, I don't have enemies outside my door, but I have an enemy inside my wife. And it multiplies. And I, I look and I, I would like, like I've done to strangers, is lay hands on her and say, be gone. But it's not gone. I would like to just be able to say a prayer and all the side effects not affect her. But it looks like they're going to affect her. And so I look at this thing and I say, Lord, this is what I need at this moment in my life. Because I don't want my head down. I don't want to deny reality. I don't want to fake it till I make it. I want to have triumph. And the psalmist says, even when your enemies surround you, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and he will keep you safe. Even though the enemies are multiplied, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, what, is, what does this mean for us? Are you tracking with me a little bit? Well, when the Bible talks about the beauty of the Lord, here's how he, here's how he describes it. He says, your face. Now, 
the idea of relational presence, the idea of, of an experience of the presence of God is often identified as face. And so the psalmist says, your face will I seek. And so an experience of the presence of God, not just not just a concept of presence or a concept that he's everywhere present, but actually an experience of his presence, David is saying, brings you into an experience of his beauty. Now, this is somewhat different than Isaiah, and there's, there's something really important to be discerned here. Isaiah, you see, he experienced the holiness of God. Do you know what happened to him when he saw the holiness of God? He was a man undone. It, it, it broke him. It, it, it showed him God was holy, but he was not. And then one of the one of the probably the greatest descriptions of the glory of God is in the the with Ezekiel. And the glory just keeps filling and filling and filling. And Ezekiel has this sense of of his own smallness, his own insignificance, and yet of the tremendous significance of God. And so in many ways, when you have an experience of his holiness, it makes you see your own unholiness. When you see and experience his glory, it doesn't make you feel that good about your own glory. But David says, in his beauty, in his face, Something different happens. To behold and experience the beauty of God is actually to find pleasure in God himself and in your perception of God. It moves from just, I'm not holy, I'm not worthy, to God, your very presence is my pleasure. Now, this is radically different, if you think about it, than just seeing something. I, I walk all the time in Nyack, and I, I'm always noticing where people are in the sidewalk. And so I look for information. Where are they standing? How are they coming? Plus, I have this crazy dog who thinks everybody's his buddy. <laughs> and so I'm trying to hold the dog and keep him from going up and licking everybody. And, and, and you know, it's informative, my gaze. It helps me. Being aware keeps me from running into people. Because I, the interesting thing is, most people who walk don't even seem aware of where they're walking or who they're walking over. Uh, even walking, you have to walk defensively. <laughs> but that's not the experience of beauty. Beauty is never just useful, it's never just informative. To experience the beauty of God is to have a perception of the pleasure of knowing God. It's a perceptible pleasure. See, what, what I find with so many people, and I've been in the church for 63 years. I think my parents brought me the first or second week I was alive. I've been in the church 63 years with so many people who hate church who hate the word, who hate prayer, who think they have to do it. They're punching their clock. They're putting in their time. Let me tell you, if you've not had pleasure in God, then you don't know God. Because to, to know him, to experience him in a real way is to have such a perception of what real pleasure is. And so David is talking about a perception of pleasure of knowing God. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but when I was in college, you know, I was looking for courses to get easy A's. 
And one of those areas, you had to take art appreciation or you had to take music appreciation. I asked, which one is easier? They said the music appreciation one was easier. So I took that one. Little did I know how much music they were going to make me listen to. I was singing classical music, Credence, Clearwater Revival, The Beatles, The Stones, something like that. They're thinking about these old dead European guys by the name of Brahms and Bach and Haydn and all of these different people. And so I'm like, oh my goodness, I have to listen to all this music. And so, you know, in those days, there weren't all the ways that you could stream music. We actually had to put a vinyl record on and listen to this thing. And I remember listening and thinking, okay, I can do my homework while I do this. I can write stuff. I can get other assignments done. And I'm listening to these piano concertos. And all of a sudden, I start crying. I start being moved by the beauty of the music. I remember these ones by Brahms and and some by uh, Debussy and these different things. And suddenly, I wasn't in the class for a grade to get my degree. I was in a pleasurable moment of perception. Everything changed about the way I experienced that music. Now, I'm still a classical music Philistine. My wife made me go to a concert one time, and uh, there were people from our church and, that were singing, and the, there, was, there was a chorus, and there was the symphony and all this stuff. And I go to this thing, and I'm really not wanting to be there, but she's making me be there. And I, all of a sudden, they start up, and they're beginning to play, and the singers are singing. I go, I know this. And she goes, what? I said, yeah, this is the theme song from Conan the Barbarian. And she goes, ugh. Gave me a nice bruise for that one. I said, shut up. But there's something you see about something that's merely informative or useful. And if God is merely an information and useful tool in your life, then he's not God. But if you have a perception of him and his word and his spirit's work and you go, Lord, you are beautiful to me, then what you're saying is the very thought of God, the very experience of God for you is a pleasurable one. But it's not just when you talk about beauty, it's not just that it's pleasurable, but to find him beautiful, Isaiah says, the king is in his beauty. In other words, there's an excellence about God. Or perfection and excellence. And then in Psalm 50, it says, uh, from Zion, the temple, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. And so when you experience the beauty of God, anything that's beautiful is attractive. Anything that is truly beautiful is desirable. So here in the scripture is the idea of you and I experiencing God in the midst of our trouble. So when we experience him, the description is this. We experience his excellence. We experience how attractive he is. We want to gaze upon him because he is the longing and desire of our hearts. And the experience of God itself is pleasurable and satisfying to us. I mean, think about how when your heart is restless, that just to be exposed to what you find excellent and desirable, what you find pleasurable, just to be exposed to that takes your restlessness down to restfulness. Because an exposure to true beauty 
is a tonic for the soul. Like I said, music can be such a tonic. Sometimes when you can't put your emotions in words, the music can bypass your intellect and get right to the soul of the thing. Some of us, if we go to the mountains or for many of us, the beach to go to the ocean, one of the things that's been an incredible comfort to me, and this may seem strange, but is the Hudson River. I live just a couple of blocks, and every day as I'm walking, I see the Hudson. Now, I don't get too close, and I don't look at what's in it, but going and seeing that river is a tonic for my soul. See, beauty takes you out of yourself. It's calming. It's satisfying. It gets rid of the restlessness. In Psalm 1611, it says, in your face, in your presence, is the fullness of joy. In Hebrew, the word is joy, joy. It's the repetition of the word joy. To behold the beauty of God's face is joy, joy. Now, Augustine made this really well. He describes it really well. He says, if you're looking for the experienced beauty and you look for this apart from God, you won't find it. Any beauty short of God always finds fault. It's never attractive enough. It's never excellent enough. But if you have his beauty, Augustine said, you can lift up your head, finding all his attributes excellent, attractive, and satisfying. See, I've met people who are theologians who never experienced the beauty of God. They could explain to you each of the individual attributes of God, and they could explain it incredibly well. But you see, beauty is not an attribute of God. It's the, it's the experience of all the attributes as one. See, God is the good thing. He's, he's the beautiful thing. And, and the psalmist says, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, I know I'm running out of time, but I have the microphone, so I don't care. Uh, why does David say in the temple I will see the beauty of the Lord in the temple he says it also in Psalm 84 where he says how lovely are your courts O Lord my soul and my heart longs for the courts of the Lord in Psalm 65 he says again he says how, how wonderful it is to be one who is drawn into your presence in the temple why is it that so many people will say, well, you know, I really experienced God on the mountain. I experienced him in nature. And David says, you can only experience his beauty in the temple. The reason for that is actually pretty simple. What is the temple? The temple is the place of sacrifice. It's the only place where God promised, not, not for his everywhere presence to be revealed, but rather for his manifest, his Shekinah glory to be revealed. He said, when you once a year come, bring a spotless lamb. Prepare yourselves. Sacrifice that lamb. Cover the altar. Cover the mercy seat in the temple with that blood as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And he says, there my glory will be. So the temple was always the place where there was going to be the reconciliation of sinners with the holy God. The, the temple was the place where God was providing a way that even the worst of sinners could have the closest and most intimate of relationships. 
The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, your fathers say we have to worship in Jerusalem. Our father said you have to worship on this mountain. Which do you say? And Jesus said, neither. The day is coming, he said, when those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, until you are reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, until there is a sacrifice that has become the salvation of your life, there is no reconciliation between you and God. Instead, you're still on the outside of his beauty, not experiencing his beauty. Because Jesus, the fairest of 10,000, Jesus, the most beautiful of all the beauties that there ever have been, became ugly, became disfigured, became killable. So that though his father forsook him, his father will never forsake you. See, without the sacrifice, there are no eyes. There is no capacity for that beauty. What I'm realizing as I'm going through this day of trouble, is I can, I can pray, and I do pray with Lisa every day that the cancer is gone. I pray every day that the side effects will not debilitate her. I pray all those things, but I have no power. My prayer is not the cause. My faith is not the cause of things that happen. Only the Lord is the healer. Only the Lord is the deliverer. But I can do this. As the enemies surround us, I can come into his temple. I can come into his face. I can come into his presence. So what we've been doing is every, every day as we feel led, we go to communion together. And we don't use those gluten-free things that kill you. take our matzos and as we're breaking the bread, as we're drinking the cup we gaze upon his presence. It's not that we don't want the cancer gone. We want it gone. But we've realized there's no shortcut to this. We're having to take the long way. And what we're having to do is fight. What we're having to do is overcome. And we don't overcome with a strategy. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. The name of Jesus is stronger than cancer. The name, the blood of Jesus is more powerful than cancer. And so as we take communion, his beauty overwhelms us. I, I can't tell you how much I've wept, how much I've experienced. And, and the thing is, it's not an unpleasurable weeping. It is the excellence of his presence. It is my heart gaining in the midst of what I feel like is the greatest trial of my life. It's my heart gaining the perception of the pleasure of his presence. Because even though cancer is not done with, in his presence there is joy, joy. God bless you. Will you stand with me as we close this morning? I had this picture in the first service and I'll just share it with you briefly here but um, my daughter is going through some vision therapy for her eyes and one of the things that she has to do is she has to wear her glasses and so it's kind of been uh, an argument back and forth with us and her to say Lucy wear your glasses put your glasses on 
And uh, she's been wearing them more and more, and it really helps to focus her eyes. And this morning, I have to wear my glasses, and I do not like wearing my glasses. And so on the way here, I was complaining about having to wear my glasses, and she said, I don't mind wearing mine anymore because I've seen what it looks like with them on, and I know the difference when they're off. And that's the picture that I get when I think about gazing on the beauty of the Lord. It's this focusing in of our eyes, of seeing his beauty. And once you see it, it's not, nothing's the same anymore. And so would you pray with me as we close this morning? Father, thank you for your beauty. Oh Lord, you are beautiful. Your face is all that we seek. Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all that we seek. We know that when we see you, when we experience your beauty, everything around us changes. And so, Lord, we do look up. We fix our gaze on you. We thank you for the sacrifice. We thank you for the provision. We thank you that in your presence there is fullness. We thank you that because of your son Jesus, we have right standing with you. And so we can come close. We can draw near. In the midst of everything that we go through, everything that we walk through, in the midst of the long road, we can draw near. We can put on our glasses and we can focus on your beauty. And so we give you all the glory and all the honor and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.